This is the sixth in a series of talks by Joel, titled, The Practice of Inquiry 6. Are You Thoughts or Will? Recorded October 18th, 2006, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So far, we have conducted an inquiry to see if we are bodily sensations, desires, and emotions. And if you've been following the inquiry, presumably you have observed that all these phenomena, the sensations, the desires, the aversions, the emotions, and all that, are impermanent. They arise and they pass away, they arise and they pass away, and yet you are not impermanent, whatever you are. But most of us also identify not only with our bodies and our emotions, but our thoughts. So this morning, that's what we want to conduct an inquiry to investigate. Are we our thoughts? And thoughts are particularly tricky for a number of reasons. So we should explore that a little bit before we go look and see if we are thoughts to avoid getting deceived by them. First of all, as Westerners in particular, we were taught to think for ourselves. And this gives us the impression our thoughts are our own, or at least they should be our own. <coughs> we pride ourselves on our own thoughts and the fact we think for ourselves, and we're not sheep that slavishly follow some leader or whatever. Isn't this true? But if we look at it, Closely, we see our thoughts are very much predetermined. And the first thing we can look at is the limitation of the language which we inherited. I mean, we didn't invent English. English was passed down to us by our ancestors, who was passed down by their ancestors and so forth. And the English language forces us to think of the world, if we're thinking in English, in very specific ways. Uh, somebody brought up, maybe the world should be described more by verbs than nouns, that maybe that would reflect reality more. Interestingly enough, in the Nutka language of the Vancouver Island Indians, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right. It's N-O-O-T-K-A in English. All their primary words, their nouns, are actually verb forms. So, for instance, one example is house. The equivalent in their language is a verb that means something like housing. It's very much like a flame burning. It's a process. And in their culture, they have different kinds of houses that range from short-lasting uh, lean-tos that you would throw up for a few days when you're out hunting or something, you know. And that, you wouldn't expect that to last for more than a few days. And then apparently they have family dwellings which are built to last longer. Maybe, I don't know, I'm making this up a year or two, whatever. And then they have big communal lodge buildings built out of big timbers that last even longer. And the way they distinguish these houses is by a suffix which 
tells you what the expected duration of the house is. So it'd be housing long-lasting, housing medium-lasting, housing short-lasting. They look at it as a process, not as some solid thing. And you would see if you spoke this language, the world would appear to you quite differently. And this is true of any speaker of a language that is radically different from our European languages that have an Indo-European root. You know, basically the structure and the grammar is the same, so you don't have that much of a change if you learn Spanish or something like that. But if you go learn some Native American tongues, which have a completely different source, you come up with a different way of seeing the world. Anyway, the point here is that, okay, we think we think for ourselves, but we didn't invent our language, it was inherited. Most of our views, our overviews, our worldviews, philosophies or whatever, religions, uh, scientific theories, political ideas and so forth, Again, we inherited from others, didn't we? Our parents or our teachers or our friends. You know, uh, Al-Ghazali wrote about this. He was a Sufi who lived in Baghdad in, I don't know, it was the 12th century or something. And it was quite a multicultural society. There were a lot of Jews, there were Christians. And he noticed that Christians' children tend to grow up Christian. And Jewish children tend to grow up and be Jews, and Muslim uh, children tend to grow up and be Muslim. And he used this fact to chastise his fellow Muslims who were so proud of being Muslim. And he said, you're Muslim basically because you grew up being Muslim. That's why you're Muslim. So stop being so proud of the fact. So be a little humble, you know. And, you know, people sometimes do convert from one religion to another or whatever, or they, they adopt a different political ideology from their parents. But even in those cases, it's interesting, they usually end up having chosen between two already pre-existing points of view. They don't create their own individual whole political theory about the world. And often the choice is driven by some psychological factors that really have not that much to do with politics. Rebellion against the parents or something like that. My father had a friend his name was Chuck, and he had a son who was a little bit older than me. And Chuck had had a background going back to the 30s as a labor organizer and a commie and stuff. And now he was reformed. He was, you know, fairly well off. He was a radio writer and he made a good living and all that. But he carried over from those days a hatred of cops. He just hated cops, you know. Guess what his son turned out to be? <laughs> you got it, a policeman. So, if we really examine how and why we arrive at certain views, how much was something that you really consciously created yourself? Even when you did deviate from the views that you were given by your parents and so forth, wasn't it like being at a, a smorgasbord? You know, it's already prepared for you. And you go around with the plate, and maybe you've put together a little of this, a little of that, a touch of this, you know. Maybe you took a big helping of liberalism when you were young, and now you actually see there's some conservative ideas that may be valuable. So you go back and you take some of the conservative on your plate and stuff like that. So, 
Here we pride ourselves on thinking for ourselves, and our minds are following grooves that have been laid down generations before us. That's my point. First, just at the bedrock level of language, and then at the level of the ideas that flows through the channels that language has carved out. And so we inherit these ideas, we inherit the, the medium to express them in. So in that, in that sense, they aren't ours. Young children have much more variety in their language. They taught young kids for a long time, and they're always coming up with thoughts that are different. We put together, and I noticed that by fifth grade, that's on the way. And I think they uh, also have a tendency to create their own languages too. In fact, my uh, nephew and his mother spoke a language until he was about four or five that nobody else could understand that they developed between themselves. So I'm not saying it's impossible. Obviously, somebody thought up all these thoughts. I mean, they all had an origin somewhere with somebody. So it's not that there's no creativity about thinking things and coming up with language, but it's just that we tend to have a false perception of our own thought processes. We tend to identify with them. This is part of who I am. So, again, these are warm-up exercises here to get to the actual empirical investigation of watching thoughts and see if you are your thoughts. Okay, so the second thing about thought that's tricky is that we are convinced that some thoughts are true and some thoughts are false. And that this is really vital. In fact, this is really what thinking is uh, largely about in our experience. Not everything. There's some thoughts that are just entertaining. But the really important ones are, is it true or is it false? Then we have a natural tendency to bring that to the spiritual path and think that enlightenment somehow must be discovering a true thought. If only we got the true story. If only we got the true idea, the true philosophy, the true concept, that would be enlightenment. Our minds just tend to go that way. And then we hear teachings about that's not true, but our minds continue to harbor that secret suspicion that it must be true, because what else would it be? These mystics are talking about truth and reality and things like that. So... We don't recognize that thoughts are true or false only in relation to other thoughts. And by that I mean only in relation to some criteria that we set up in the beginning and then we can judge a thought as true or false. But what we don't realize is that we set the criteria. So just to give two quick examples, one from deductive logic is Euclidean geometry. And Euclidean geometry starts with a series of axioms, self-evident truths, supposedly. And then we can prove things true or false based on deducing them from these axioms. But you have to start with the axioms. And the axioms seemed, at one time, to be absolutely undoubtable. There are things like Two parallel lines never meet. 
And actually, just to give you a little, uh, a little snippet of history about this, because it's kind of interesting, mathematicians during the 19th century looked at that and they thought, you know, this shouldn't be an axiom. We should be able to prove that two parallel lines don't meet from the other axioms we have. And they tried that and they couldn't. So then somebody got the bright idea of saying, well, let's assume they do meet. What would happen? How would that change geometry? And they came up with a whole different kind of geometry, a non-Euclidean geometry. And that was an interesting intellectual abstract thing that mathematicians were interested in and nobody else was interested in. Of course, that had nothing to do with the real world. In the real world, parallel lines don't meet. Except when Einstein came along and came up with his theory and suddenly these non-Euclidean geometries turn out to be, quote, true. So here's a, just an example of the whole base of reference shifting and in one system where the criteria is one way, things are true and false, and then it shifts, and the truth and false value shifts. That's what I mean by everything that we call true and false in terms of our thoughts are relative. It's relative to the criteria. Once we set the criteria, it can be very precise, but without the criteria, it doesn't mean anything. The same is true of simple empirical statements like if I say it's raining outside and you wanted to check that out, you would get up, you'd go outside, and there would be criteria to determine whether that was true or not. Is there water falling from the sky? And when you come back in the room and say, yes, Joel, when he said it was raining outside, he's telling the truth, what you're really saying is that my statement is fitting some criteria. But we set the criteria. So what we take for granted in our everyday life actually... It's not ultimately true. But from the point of view of enlightenment, thought isn't true or false. It is just thought. It is all imaginary. It is all mental phenomena arising and passing. It doesn't come labeled true or false any more than trees are labeled oak and fir. Thought is just thought at that level. It's like turning on the TV and saying, you know, I don't watch any of that silly fiction stuff they have on television. I just watch documentaries. So you flip through the sitcoms and the game shows and, and the police dramas and this and that, and then you get to PBS. And there's the Serengeti Plain and the lions eating the antelopes on the Serengeti Plain. But guess what? From the empirical point of view of the naked experience before we impose on it our ideas, it's all light forms on a boob tube. The essence is the same. Whether it's the Serengeti plane or some silly uh, sitcom, isn't it? Well, this is thought from an absolute point of view. It may be the most profound thought. It may be a stupid thought. It doesn't matter. It's, from that point of view, it's just thought. So thought is constantly tricking us that way, trying to seduce us into going for this thought rather than that thought because this thought's true and that thought's false. So as we do this practice, we want to be aware of that and not be seduced. That has its place in, in normal social discourse. But from the point of view of the practice, do not be sucked into that. When the thought says, but... Listen to me, because I'm true. 
This is particularly a problem for Jananis because the reason they tend to be attracted to a Janana approach is because they have relied on their intellect to navigate through life more so than other people. And so we bring that attitude to our practice. So we have to be very careful about that. So let's try a little experiment here with thought, especially with this business of true thoughts and false thoughts, and see if we can see that all thought is the same in being just thought. Let's see if we can look at the thought and ignore the judgment of whether it might be true or false or not. So this is going to be a guided meditation, rather short, but let's get into our meditative position and try to cultivate a little bit of an undistracted mind so we can see things clearly. Here we go. So let's begin by concentrating on our meditation object to stabilize attention. Now generate the thought, I am a human being. And allow it to self-liberate.
Now generate the thought, I am not a human being, and allow it to self-liberate. Notice that in both cases, they are just thoughts. Generate the thought I am a human being is a true thought. And allow it to self-liberate. Generate the thought, I am not a human being, is a false thought. And allow it to self-liberate. Notice whether true or false, they are still just thoughts. Now generate some true thoughts and some false thoughts on your own and notice that whether they are true or whether they are false, they are just thoughts.
notice that the thought, they are just thoughts, is itself just a thought. and allow it to self-liberate. able to get a sense that at one level whether a thought is true or false or however we judge it it's just a thought it doesn't matter does anybody not see that or yeah um, I found it was harder for me to self-liberate thoughts that I thought were false it was hard to self-liberate thoughts you thought false I wanted to keep them around and analyze them and argue about them ah Ooh, good <laughs> But the true ones are as easy to let go? Oh, because you were satisfied with that one. No. <laughs> but this is very important to know about yourself. We did this with very simple statements so that they wouldn't arouse philosophical debate about it and your mind wouldn't get going. But the principle is the same. We want to apply when we do have thoughts that we think are important. It's important to know about you know, my partner, whether they're screwing around or not. I got to find that one out. So that's just the kind of thought that seduces us into the story and doesn't allow us to see it's just a thought, to see its true nature. It's a different question whether in a relative sense it's true or not. But for the purpose of this, we want to know where we are starting from. So we're trying to look at it from an absolute point of view. Then we can go on and play in the realm of thought. But what are we playing with? What is the true nature of these things? Alan, was you raising your hand? Yeah, I wanted to say it's a fascinating exercise because you can see that false and true thoughts are essentially the same on the level of mentation. So I was first thinking, I'm in the and the next thought I had was, I'm in the supermarket. And it made no difference. It was the same as touching my right knee and touching my left knee. So they feel slightly different, but it's essentially the same sensation. So any thought is essentially the same mentation. That's exactly what we're trying to see. Exactly what we're trying to see. Paul, we're going to get them. 
Well, while I was generating the thoughts, the thought arose, who is generating the thoughts? <laughs> and did you come up with an answer? No. No. Okay, good. <laughs> that's fine. If, if it just arose, at this point, look at that thought and see that that's just a thought. We're actually tomorrow going to use that thought as a pointer. We're going to single that thought out and give it some relative value. But for today, if that thought arises, see that that thought's just a thought too. It's just, just like Alan says, it's no different from any other thought you might have. This is just the kind of thought that the spiritual mind will, will hook on to. Well, this is different. Because Ramana Maharshi says, ask, who am I? So this, this is an important thought. But no, we want to see it does not matter. True, false, spiritual, mundane, they're all at that level the same. The same taste as the Buddhists say. They're all the same essence. No thought is true. Yes, and that's just the thought. That's the point. That's just the thought. <laughs> oh, Bhadi Shanti said that. <laughs> <laughs> it was the only thing I remember. Right. And then, see, Joel said, it's just the thought. Oh, that must be important. No, it's just the thought. <laughs> so, we're just trying to see that no matter what kind of thought it is, fundamentally it's imaginary. True, false, paradoxical, uh, you know, whatever it is. Okay? <clears throat> Alright, so, the third and last reason thought is tricky is because we can develop, we might say, a thinker, a spiritual thinker that has spiritual thoughts that we do identify with about those mundane thoughts that we don't identify with. So you might be sitting there and you say something like, look at all those old memories I'm having about uh, something I did in high school that was stupid. And they've been causing me all this problem. This is just thought. It doesn't mean anything. Wow, this is fabulous. This is what Joel was talking about. Let me just keep going with this because this really is the path to enlightenment. I can see that now. Yeah. And we talked about this on a previous retreat, and Lewis called it the coach. You remember talking about the, the coach? It's like you're you know, playing a tennis match, and the coach is on the sidelines. So, watch us serve, watch us serve, you know. <laughs> so these thoughts that come from the coach are what I call the spiritual story that's developing in the background, usually, of the, our worldly story. There's the story of our worldly life, and then, as we go on a spiritual path, a spiritual story starts to form. And then, of course, we tend to give credence to the spiritual story, and we tend to dis the worldly story, and, and then distance ourselves. And we start to disidentify with the I that's in the worldly story, but we shift our identification to the I in the spiritual story. What we want to recognize in this exercise here, it doesn't matter, it's still story. Story is made up of thoughts, fueled by desire and emotion and so forth, but it's made up of thoughts. So I'm just trying to alert you to the subtleties of this practice. Okay? So now we're going to make our own inquiry into the nature of thought and the two things we want to look for. The first is to see that no matter what the content of the thought is, it is 
still just a thought and in that sense it is imaginary. <coughs> Literally imaginary. Literally an image in the mental field. And at the same time, we want to notice that all thought, no matter what the content, is impermanent. It comes and it goes. And so we want to ask the question, well, the thoughts come and they go, but do I come and go? <clears throat> if not, how can I be these thoughts? So, I won't be giving you any guidance, but we'll start the same way. Concentration, until you stabilize your attention, and then you can expand it through all the fields until you get to the spacious awareness. And just hang out in spacious awareness, and don't worry about it. Thoughts will come on their own. They'll come, they'll go. If you want, you can try generating some thoughts, See what happens. Don't be afraid to play around. Uh, you can try letting the thoughts form into stories and see how far you can go before you get sucked into the story. And it's very valuable to see a powerful story forming and see it pass a whole train, I mean a long freight train, you know, carrying all kinds of baggage, and see it's not me. It's gone. In fact, in this exercise, the more you can do that without hitching a ride on the freight train, without being taken off with it, the better it will be. It's a wonderful opportunity for that direct insight that I'm not these thoughts. They're just imaginary. So you experiment. You play around with it and also continue this through lunch. One thing about thought, it's always with you. So you always have an opportunity to practice this. Okay? Here we go. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
for many seekers, the hardest aspect of delusion to penetrate is this notion that we have self-will. That there is somebody in here, uh, a soul or a spirit or an ego or something like that. I always think of it as these big cranes you see. And uh, they got a little uh, cab and somebody out there pulling little levers and depending what the crane is doing, it lifts great beams and so forth. So it's like somebody's up here, right? This is what I mean by the decider, the controller, the, the agent of volition, of self-will. So even if we go and examine uh, the body, the emotions, our thoughts, it's still very hard to get over this notion. We could see, well, in some ways I'm not my body, you know, all the sensations come and go, and uh, I'm not my emotions, they come and go, and my thoughts rapidly come and go, and so in that sense maybe I'm not that but I still seem to be somebody in here who has some little control. Is that your experience? And there's very good reason for it. You know, these things, again, aren't arbitrary, just like the way we draw boundaries around the body and stuff. It's not arbitrary. Uh, our minds create correlations, and then based on the correlations, we draw these boundaries. But I'm sitting here now, and I'm going to decide to raise my hand. Now watch. Bingo! <laughs> and now I'm going to decide to put my hand down. And moreover, that reinforces this idea is that the effect of my will seems to be limited. I can raise my hand, but I can't make the striker of the gong rise and strike the gong unless I physically pick it up and strike it. So this seems to create a distinction. There are those things that I can will, and then there are many, many things that I can't will out there. But our George, he can't do his hand. Well, that's very interesting, too. I was going to get to that, but since you got there already, let's go there. Um, yes, yeah, so even the very limited things we can do with our body that we seem to be able to will into action, that's very contingent on our circumstances. And George is a wonderful example of the deterioration of that completely, where he has really almost no control over any part of his body because of his ALS, except his eyes, and even that he's losing. There's a disconnect. So it's like you're sitting here, and of course you can will your hand to rise, and it ain't rising. So this is a very tenuous connection. It's not just absolute and automatic. That's a very good point. And then our emotions. Yes, in some sense, we can recall some incident and then we can work up an emotion. We've been doing that in our meditation practices. But under normal circumstances, during the day, you're kind of at the mercy of your emotions, aren't you? I mean, something will trigger them, and often it's something outside that you have no control of. I worked at the Bodhi Tree bookstores, most of you know, for a while, and some of you may have worked in a similar situation, any situation where you have customers coming in off the street. And it was very interesting to watch how customers would come in and the way they treated you all through the day would determine your emotional state. So some of them would come in and they were so grateful because your knowledge and you helped them find things they wanted and they looked upon you as a kind of god. I mean, really, there were some people who 
because you worked at the Bodhi tree, you must be spiritual and all that. And they would ask you, you know, I'm looking for something to help with my arthritis. Uh, I heard crystals are good. Well, here's a book on crystals and how they have healing powers. Oh, really? Oh, thank you so much. You're so wise. I mean, and you see your, your ego expands like a big balloon full of hot air. And then other people come in and they treat you like a servant. They walk around and pick a book and don't even look at you. Say, here, hold this. Down it goes. Ooh, up it goes. Up and down. So this is not something you can control. And, uh, and then when we watch our thoughts, it seems we can decide to stop thinking about that and change the stream around. But once it gets going, we don't decide each thought that we're going to think, do we? They just pop up. And there are a lot of times, not only didn't we decide the thought, we didn't particularly want the thought. But here it comes down the pipe. And once it's there, you know, it's too late. I mean... <laughs> So, self-will is certainly not congruent with the body and thoughts and emotions. I mean, it's not just everything inside that boundary is subject to our will by any means. And even what is subject to our will varies throughout our lives. So, it's a funny thing. I'm just raising these issues so we get a sense of, you know, how mysterious this, this really is. But in any case... The fact that we believe that we have some self-will anyway puts us in conflict with the universe and with other beings in the universe. Because other beings think they have self-will too and their will doesn't always conform to our will. And so we want something and somebody else doesn't want us to have it or they want it and there's only one of a kind or whatever. And so it's through this sense that we have self-will that we run into conflict with other people. And then we run into conflict with the universe. Sometimes we don't think of it as the universe having a will, but it seems very resistant to our will at least. So... Not only is it a linchpin of our delusion, for a lot of us anyway, but it also is a major source of our suffering in the world. So it's a very important aspect of the delusion of self to look at and examine carefully. So that's what we're going to try to do here. <clears throat> First of all, it's the testimony of the mystics that there is no decider sitting in the control room. Here's a teaching that Krishna gives Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. Always and everywhere, acts are done by the states arising in primal matter. A man totally confused in his self-consciousness imagines, I act. So what he's saying is, yes, things are done, things happen, but they arise out of just the states of nature. But a man totally confused in his self-consciousness imagines, I act. Here's the Buddhist scholar, Walpola Rahula, and he says, The Sanskrit word karma literally means action or doing. But in the Buddhist theory of karma, it has a specific meaning. It means only volitional action. Not all action. So, 
you know, we often talk about karma around here. I think most of you are familiar with that term, and we use it rather loosely, but karma is the action that you will. The action that you don't will is not karmic. Your heart beating is not karmic. So, then he goes on, and he says, karma may be good or bad relatively. Good karma produces good effects. Bad karma produces bad effects. So, in other words, if you will something good, something, you know, nice for other people, that will produce good effects. It'll alleviate your suffering. If you will evil to other people, that will produce bad effects, and that will produce more suffering. So it has a relative effect within the realm of samsara. But then he goes on to say, whether good or bad, it is relative and is within the cycle of continuity. That is a term for samsara. An arahant, which is a, an enlightened one in the Theravadian tradition, an arahant, though he acts, does not accumulate karma because he is free from the false idea of self free from the thirst for continuity and becoming. So the idea is the arahat has no sense of self in there that wills anything. So it doesn't produce any volitional action. And that's how an enlightened one is free of karma. There's no self-will going on. Here's what Rumi says. No one has reached maturity except him who has been freed from self-will. He means spiritual maturity. And here's what God tells Catherine of Siena, the great Christian mystic. It is by that death of self-will that she realizes her union with me and in no other way could she perfectly accomplish that. And in Christian terms, if you have your will and God has God's will, then you're in conflict. You're not in union. And even if you are conforming your will to God's will, you're giving, in a certain sense, your consent to whatever happens. In a certain sense, you're reserving the right to dissent in case it doesn't go so good, right? But if you have no will, if you have surrendered your will in bhakti terms, then there's only one will operating in the universe and there can be no conflict. So it's the same teaching. Now it's put in bhakti terms rather than jnana terms. The Buddhist teaching is in jnana terms. But it amounts to the same thing. The freedom comes from seeing through the delusion of self-will, realizing there is no self-will, and then there's no conflict. So, the question is, how can we begin to dismantle this very strong aspect of delusion we have that we are, in fact, some sort of willing agent? And, as we talked about before, if you're a bhakti, the way you go about that is to start surrendering yourself. Now, the bhakti does usually get to a point of crisis where you've given up everything that's mine, but there's still that sense of self there. As the author of The Cloud of Unknowing said, even after you've given up everything else, 
that sense of your own blind being will remain between you and your God. And then you have a little bit of a struggle because the more you try to give it up, the more you realize you're there. Because the action of trying to give it up is creating the sense of self. So you run into this paradox. The Janani approach is to go inquire and see if there actually is a decider there. Can you find the decider? That becomes our challenge. That becomes our question. So, the way you do that then is you have to be in situations where decisions are being made. And since we have throughout our lives all sorts of decisions to make, it's helpful if we can, at least in the beginning, narrow it down and frame certain situations where the decision-making is obvious and there's a little spaciousness and we can have a little mindfulness and we can turn it into a practice. So, often big decisions have that quality about them. We're not making snap judgments like that. So, like if you have to buy a house, that's a good uh, place to look and you can watch how your mind decides which house or buying a car or any, as we like to say, big ticket item in this culture. Another wonderful place that makes a very good laboratory for this experiment, this inquiry, is going to a restaurant. And this happens quite often in most people's lives. And the way you turn this into a practice is, first of all, you make a firm resolve that every time you go to a restaurant, it's going to be a spiritual practice. Then you set in your mind a clue to remind you, because that's our big problem, to remember to do these things. When somebody hands you a menu, bingo, spiritual practice. It's just as though they rang the gong, see? So... The menu is the gong. Ah, okay. And, you know, usually in a restaurant, it's a little bit more relaxed. Everybody's you know, chatting about nonsense and nothing. And so you sit there with your menu. And now you're going to go into your spacious awareness. So you do a little breathing. You concentrate the attention. Take it quickly through the various sense fields. You know, watch it. Now you're in spacious awareness. I'm serious. You just do what you normally do in a restaurant. But you're doing it mindfully. And you start reading through the menu, and you watch your mind, and you watch what happens. Something arises on the menu, and it triggers a response. You look at uh, scampi. It may be, mm, oh, I love scampi. Wow, they have scampi at this restaurant. Or it may be, they don't really like shrimp very much. And you're not doing this. It's a response that's being triggered by the listening on the menu. So you just have to watch. You don't have to do anything. Just watch what happens. One of the things you'll notice is that most of the responses are conditioned. Totally conditioned. Conditioned by your past, your culture, whatever, you know? So if you're not very adventurous in terms of ordering food and stuff like that, and somebody takes you to some exotic restaurant, you know, the latest Ethiopian restaurant down the street where they serve roast goat, you watch your response, and everything on the menu is going to go, ooh. And then finally you get to the bottom and it says American hamburger. Oh, thank God. You don't have to decide anything. You're just reading and you're watching. If you are adventurous, then you may say, oh, goat with a, I don't know, cinnamon sauce? Hmm, that sounds wonderful, you know. And then maybe your problem is they all sound wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, 
notice we haven't gotten to the decision part yet. It's not a decision, it's just a response. Then the waiter comes around and your friends are pressuring you and this and that. And now this is where you really want to become observant. And you can actually see your mind narrowing it down. It's going to be between the goat and the scampi. And you can even almost feel this weighing process. And then your friends are, you know, saying, oh, come on, Joel, hurry up. And boom, I'll take the goat. Now, the trick here is, did you find, did you see, did you observe the decider? There's no question the decision was made. The scales fell. And, you know, goat became it, and the potential for scampi vanished. It's just like quantum mechanics. So a decision is made. But was there anyone decided? That is the question. That's what you're looking for. That's the target of the inquiry. So everybody got that? And then you can do this in any situation where a decision's made. It doesn't have to be a restaurant. A restaurant's just very nicely framed, and you get a chance to practice more often than probably buying a house unless you're a professional real estate speculator or something like that. So, this is an inquiry that is difficult to do in formal meditation here in a place like Diamond Hall because we don't really make that many decisions sitting here. Maybe the only decision you have to make is, should I get up and bolt now and get in my car and leave, or can I stick it out? But other than that, you know, there are not really that many decisions to make. So, uh, we're going to take the afternoon and go solo, and the instruction is to wander around, and naturally decisions will come up. You know, like, what should I do next to kill time until dinner? <laughs> And so, uh, you know, the choices are take a walk, go sit and have some tea, take a shower, take another shower, right? <laughs> whatever you do. But this is all good practice, so it's supposed to be this way. The more decisions that you can uh, generate, the better opportunity you'll have to make this inquiry to see, is there a decider? Yes? Uh, just to make sure I understand this, we are looking for... Desire, right. Puppet master. That's like exactly that. right. Puppet master. Very good uh, image. And not an observer. No. We're not at this point looking for the observer of all this. We're looking for the decider. Who is the puppeteer? It's a wonderful way to put it. Or, is there a puppeteer? Is there a puppeteer at all? Or is Krishna right? When we believe there's a puppeteer, we're totally confused in our self-consciousness. Okay? So, first we'll do one round together of guided meditation, and then when it's over, we'll just go our way. And we'll just observe those moments when decisions happen, and we'll see if we can find the decider behind them. Okay? So let's get into position. Now, I'm going to give you a series of commands once we get into our spacious awareness, and then you decide whether you want to obey it or not. So, it makes no difference 
objectively whether you obey it or not. The point is, I'm giving you an opportunity to decide things. So start watching now so you get a little practice of what it means to watch and see if there's someone making these decisions, okay? Here we go. So begin with concentration on your meditation object to stabilize attention. And when it's stable, allow it to expand through the various fields into spacious awareness. Now here comes the first command. Raise your right hand. Raise your left hand. If only one hand is raised, raise the other hand. Lower the right hand.
left hand. Lower all hands that are in the air. Clap your hands. Decide where you're going to go first when you leave Diamond Hall. Are you sure that's where you're going when you leave here? You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.